All right. So we're going to conclude um, our final series of exercises on gratitude uh, today. And what we have been doing for the last six weeks is to write down on the piece of paper, and if you guys need a pen, would you all just kind of, James is here with a pen. We need something to write with. And he will help you. And I'm going to ask you to think of something that you're grateful for, and then write it down, five things, five items, and then write one sentence about it. And I'm going to ask you guys, give you guys a little bit of a guidance this time around by asking at this very last Sunday of the year, Something that happened in this past year that you're grateful to God for. Something that happened in this past year, so this is a good time for us to reflect together. So five things quickly, and then um, write down a quick, short sentence regarding that. Five things that you're grateful for. Would you go ahead and do that? And now I'm going to give you guys an opportunity to share with uh, people in just uh, twos and threes. Share with those people that are uh, near to you. If you've been sharing with the same person, because that's you happen to be sitting next to your spouse, go ahead and find somebody else as well. That's always fun. Share one item. One item from your list. One item from your list. Looking around, and I see that so many of you guys are actually enjoying this time of sharing and uh, 
there's a genuine smile on your face as you guys think about things that you're thankful for. And I do hope that this, these series of exercises have helped you. My encouragement to you, once again, is that um, it really does require uh, training for us to be grateful. And um, I would encourage you to try to do this on a regular basis every day uh, going forward in this coming year. Not just on Sundays, but doing this on a little bit of a regular basis, you realize it's not as hard. And in fact, it becomes enjoyable and becomes easier and easier the more you do it. So today we're going to conclude our series on Nehemiah on this uh, last Sunday of the year. And now some of you guys might be a little bit like um, surprised to find Nehemiah back at it. Um, I'm going, what? I thought we were done with this. Um, Because we took a little break and you thought maybe we were done. No more looking for this obscure book in the Old Testament. No more reading unpronounceable names. Um, I appreciate some of you guys actually enduring through all of these names. But more importantly, you thought um, the wall was restored. The people were restored. Mission accomplished. Series over, right? Um, But in fact... Uh, Nehemiah may have thought the series was over as well, because he returns between uh, verse five, uh, cha- between chapter twelve and chapter thirteen. He actually returns to Artaxerxes, the king of Persia, whom he served in the courts, um, just as he had promised. He promised the king. This was his, the king's one condition. He said, "You can go and rebuild the city of Jerusalem, but you have to come back to me." Because he really, really uh, treasured Nehemiah's presence. So he returned back to Artaxerxes, keeping his promise. But not so surprisingly, things in Jerusalem don't stay restored. Things don't stay restored. There's a line from that very thought-provoking movie, The Incredibles, that as soon as I heard it, I knew. This was obviously many years back. But I knew I would use it in a sermon as soon as I heard it. And it happens at the beginning of the movie. Some of you may remember the movie begins with Mr. Incredible being interviewed by uh, reporters, by a reporter talking about the challenges of being a superhero. And he vents at one point. He says this. He said, no matter how many times you save the world, it always manages to get back in jeopardy again. Sometimes I just want it to stay saved. You know, for a little bit. I feel like the maid. I just cleaned up this mess. Can we keep it clean for 10 minutes? Nehemiah returns for the second time to Jerusalem, and he finds a complete mess again. He had done all of this hard work. And this is what is happening in chapter 13. This is what we're reading about at the very last chapter of the book. It's been almost 20 years since he first came, and about a dozen years since he left. But since that time of restoration and recommitment and rededication and all that stuff, but instead of a triumphal return when he comes back, in chapter 13, verse 6, he finds a place um, that's not flourishing with people who are sold out for God, but instead he finds a city full of compromised values, compromised uh, living. If you remember, at the end of chapter 9, and um, uh, most of chapter 10, I'm going to guess that most of you guys don't remember, uh, we saw how all of the people had gathered together, 
and their representatives, right? They all gather together for this confession time and commitment time and worship. And then the leaders of the people signed their names, right? They actually put a seal down on a, uh, and a new recommitment. They dedicated, them, they dedicated themselves to living out the, com- the commandments of God as the people of God. You remember that. And, and specifically, there were f- three things on this document and this, um, that they promised to do. There were three specific things. First, they c- committed to the upkeep of the temple and taking care of the priests. Upkeep of the temple goes along with the taking care of the priests because this, the point of this was that worship would be prioritized in their lives. That they would have, you need priests because not everybody read back then. In fact, very few people read. So you needed the priests to teach the word. And in order for that to happen in the temple, they needed to take care of the priests so that the priests didn't have to fend for themselves, be busy, not studying the word, and, and, and they would have to work the fields if they weren't cared for. Second, they committed to no intermarriage with pagan foreigners. This is not a race, racial thing. Uh, but it was completely about religious purity because you could have people who converted to the faith and, and the, the Jews were very, very open about other people converting to the faith. It didn't have to be their own race, but you had to have people who were going to believe the same God in the way that they would live this community life together as the people of God. So religious purity was what the intermarriage uh, the ban on the intermarriage of the foreigners, pagan foreigners, was all about. And lastly, they committed to keeping the Sabbath. And this is what they dedicated themselves to care of the temple and the priests, no intermarriage, and, no honor, uh, and, and to honoring the Sabbath. Worship, purity, Sabbath. Now, upon his return, what does Nehemiah find? What, what happens, what's happening in Jerusalem? The temple is defiled. Nehemiah 13, verse 4. Before this, Eliashab, the priest, had been put in charge of the storerooms of the house of our guard. He was closely associated with Tobiah. Now, that name Tobiah might sound familiar because he was one of the two main guys, Tobiah and Sambalat. Sambalat, the Horonite, and Tobiah, the Ammonite. Their names kept on coming up early in the book because those were the enemies of the restoration project. And this guy, Tobiah, had finagled himself a room in the temple. Not only any room, but it was a temple, a temple room that had been set aside for the keeping of worship items. To, to, to the keeping of grains and offerings to feed the priests. Well, the worship wasn't going on, so the room wasn't really used. So Tobiah, this, uh, uh, the Ammonite, said, hey... Can I use that? Because I got some um, extra furniture that I need storage for. I don't know what his needs were. But he actually stored his personal goods in the temple. Defiling the temple, right? So the temple's defiled. Priests are not taken care of. Uh, 13.10, it says, I also learned that the portions assigned to the Levites, Levites are the priests, had not been given to them. So that all the Levites and the musicians responsible for the worship service had gone back to their own fields and they were farming away. Result, worship ceased. Study of the word stalled. And then purity is not kept. Verse 23. Moreover, in those days I saw men of Judah, the Israelites, the people of God, 
who had married women from Ashdod, Ammon, and Moab. And I rebuked them and called down curses upon them. Was it not because of marriages like these that Solomon, king of Israel, sinned? Must we, wear, must we hear now that you two are doing all this terrible wickedness and, and are being unfaithful to our God by marrying foreign women? Faith watered down. And then lastly, Sabbath was not honored. Verse 15, in those days I saw people in Judah treading wine presses during, uh, on the Sabbath and bringing grain and loading it on donkeys. They were working on Sabbath against the prohibition instead of worshiping together with wine, grapes, fig, and all kinds of loads. And they were bringing all this into Jerusalem, the holy city, on Sabbath. Therefore, I warned them against selling food on the day. People from Tyre who lived in Jerusalem were bringing fish of all kinds of merchandise and selling them in Jerusalem on Sabbath to the people of Judah, I rebuked them, saying, What is this wicked thing you're doing, desecrating the holy Sabbath day? So line item by line item, the recommitments that Nehemiah had led the people of God to make were broken by chapter 13. Clearly, this didn't happen overnight. Small compromises, adding upon small compromises... And the tug of the values of the culture around them slowly pulled them away from the faithfulness to God. No one ever said, none of the people that were gathered in Jerusalem or uh, none of the people of God, I'm sure no one ever said, let's break the promises we made. They just found reasons for why something else to greater priority. Slowly but surely, They justified away their commitments that they had made before God. They justified away. I'm sure they all had good reasons. Because we all have good reasons. This is what happens. The same pull is present in our lives as well. Max Dupree was the CEO of Herman Miller. And uh, if you work in an office setting, you know Herman Miller because they're the ones that make the crazy, crazy high-tech chairs and they make the best chairs, so everybody covets these chairs, right? Uh, he happened to have been a, one of the uh, anchor board members at Fuller for a long time. So if you go to Fuller Seminar, which is a seminary with lots of budget constraints, they sit on the best chairs they sit on every one of them have the best chairs you know you you can visit pastor sam at fuller and you'll sit on these nice Aeron chairs and you're going wow if we sold a few of these and give you a raise it might be a little bit better um he is a respected authority max dupree is a respected authority on organizational leadership and he says one of the one of the most challenging jobs of a leader is the interception of Entropy. The interception of entropy. The concept of entropy is from physics, from the second law of thermodynamics. And I know there's actually a couple of people that know what the second law of thermodynamics is. If I'm wrong, don't correct me. Just go along. It's just an illustration. And the second law of thermodynamics says, in a closed system... Everything has a tendency to deteriorate. deteriorate. Energy drops. That's entropy. 
Energy always loses in a closed system. You always lose energy. Everything has a tendency to deteriorate. The interception of entropy in personal relationships, in organizations, in a church. These are things that work out a little bit differently, but very similarly. Where left alone, left alone, all of our energy, our things that we treasure, these things deteriorate. There's no cruise control that you can set and forget that are important in your life. Relationships that start out great will fizzle. Projects that start with so much hope and so much dreams, they drift and deteriorate and are left unfinished. You've seen this in your life. You can see this in marriage. And many of you guys, um, among the married folks, how many of you would say that your mar- marriage is easy and you can leave it on cruise control? How many of you people who are married would say that? In fact, I'm going to just, let me do it another way. All the people, raise your hand. Married people, raise your hand. Married people, all the married people. How many of you say, marriage is easy, you can leave it on cruise control? Okay, those people who just got married in the last few months, you should still have your hands up. <laughs> You're not, you just got married like two weeks ago, okay, so... How many of you would say it's more like driving on square wheels? I'm not trying to scare off people. But all marriages, right? All marriages, every marriage that I've ever been part of, (laughs) all the times that I've been married, no, all the times, all the weddings and marriages that I've helped, um, um, People get married, and all of those, all those marriages, all marriages that I know of, they all start with so much hope and so much um, energy, and there's so much just optimism, and, and you just think, you know, it would be hard, but it would be great. It would be hard, and it will be tough, but it will be so good because you'll be doing it with me. And then somewhere along the way, it becomes, it'll be hard, and it'll be, it'll be tough, and it's going to be so much harder and tougher because you're doing it with me, right? It turns into that sometimes. And you can't leave it on cruise control, and you have to put in the work. It doesn't stay there, and there's amazing things that could happen in a marriage, great relationships that develop that you could have never imagined before you're married, no matter how good of friendships that you could have imagined, but because of the work that you put into it, not because you put it in cruise control, right? You can see this in personal health. At this time of the year, a lot of people are thinking about getting healthier. I'm reading this book called Drop Dead Healthy, and it's about a journalist who tries to get as healthy as he can or die trying. That's the actual subtitle of the book. And... One of the dirty little secrets that he shares in the health world is that he finds out is about the before and after pictures that are so common in the health industry. And uh, what happens? Um, what happens when the latest protein shake company wants to get in the market? Uh, what they'll do is they'll hire an ad agency 
and the ad agency will scour the local gyms. For the, not for the most unfit person, but for the most shredded, most cut, uh, uh, most, uh, you know, just, just absolutely just the, the amazing physique, amazing specimen, somebody a little bit like James. And, and, and they'll ask this person and say, hey, we want you to be our spokesperson, and they'll take a picture of that person, okay, right there. And then they'll pay that person like $10,000 to get fat and out of shape. About a month later, they'll take another picture. When they print the ad, they simply reverse the before and the after pictures. The point being, it's a lot easier to get out of shape, right, than to get into it. The point being, it's a lot more predictable, absolutely predictable, it's, this is entropy. This is entropy. This is the human condition. It takes no effort to deteriorate. It takes no decision, no active decision on your part to say, I am going to let myself go. It takes effort to press forward. No one ever says, I'm having a real hard time getting out of shape. No one ever says, I'm having a real hard time having my marriage fall apart. No one ever says these things because no one wants such things, but it happens all the time. That's entropy. And that's what Nehemiah is facing. You can read a lot of emotion in Nehemiah when he returns in uh, chapter 13. Anger, disappointment, even a little bit of disgust. I mean, he actually uh, rebukes them and curses some of these guys, and, and, and it, it, what's implied is he actually physically beats up on some of them because he's so angry with some of these guys. But you don't much get the sense that he was surprised, though, by this entropy because this is the human condition. Not because he was a cynic, but because he understood human entropy. When he comes back and sees the backslidden people, he just simply gets right back to work putting things back in order, getting people to recommit, rededicate, inserting energy, revitalizing people to understand that they must do the hard thing and press on forward with the work that is involved. There is no happily ever after cruise control for Nehemiah. And there is no happily ever after for us either. Not while we're on this side of eternity. Not while we're still waiting for the second coming of Jesus. This is what we need to understand. Because some of us, we somehow, even though when I say it like this, you agree with me. Somehow we get stuck in expecting and looking for moments in which we can say, at that moment is my height and I will just stay there. You're looking for a happily ever after in your spiritual life. And you think some program, some situation, some setting, some inspiring message, some biblical insight that you find in an open Bible will help you to stay there, get there and stay there. But you're surprised when you find yourself deteriorating. I remember this conversation I had with a woman a few years ago who for a period of a couple of years just did minimal maintenance sort of spiritual life. 
And she had a lot of reasons for it, busy with her family, busy with her work. But there was no real deep relationships no real, that she was investing in, no real deep involvement in worship. Um, a, a spirituality of minimums in one sense. And I'm not judging, I'm not blaming right now. I'm just trying to describe it because uh, we've all been there. And she also knew what she, that she was doing that. What was surprising was when she said to me, I feel so spiritually dry. In a way that made me think she thought that doing this sort of spiritual cruise control was somehow supposed to at least have maintained, kept her spiritual life at a certain maintenance level. That it would just stay at a certain level. She was experiencing entropy and she was surprised by it. That her spiritual life was was deteriorating. And to me, that's what was surprising. My kids and I, we play a video game together, video games together. It usually has something to do with like Lucy and Max will get stuck in a level. And, and uh, it's uh, the latest game that we're on is uh, Lego Marvel superheroes. And Lucy and Max, well, they'll just, just be stuck on this same level for like 30 minutes and they'll just call me, call me, call me. Um, and so I have to, you know, I feel really smart I feel so superior when I get solve this section faster than my five-year-old and a seven-year-old, you know. So it, there's a little bit of a thing for me too, but um, there's this thing. Every time when we play this video game, there's a, there's a checkpoint that you get to. And you get to a checkpoint in a lot of these video games. And you could save it at that level so that no matter how much you die afterwards, you could always return to at least that checkpoint. And we think that somehow in our spiritual life, we're supposed to have these checkpoints. Somehow in our spiritual life, we expect that, you know what? You know, I'm going to just go off and I'm going to not be committed to God. I'm not going to be really thinking about the community of God, the people of God, purposes of God. Uh, I'm not going to be thinking about these things. I'm not going to be doing so much spiritual disciplines because I got other stuff that I'm, I'm busy with right now. And we think we can just get back to this checkpoint. And we're surprised and shocked when we find that these checkpoints don't exist. Oh, God is still the same. Um, The prayer is still the same. And the church may even still be there. But you will have deteriorated. And you never know how you will look upon your spiritual life, God, prayer, and church, when you get to that point. You won't feel the same. And when you don't understand your tendency toward entropy, you have a tendency to think about the reason why you're feeling a certain way, the reason why you have slid in in a way that uh, the people of Israel have have done. It's because of everything else. And you fail to look in your heart. The biblical response to entropy is discipline, spiritual discipline. There is a constant need for a disciplined life. The experience of renewal never means that our work is over. Experience of renewal never means that our work is over. If you have grown in this past year, if you have come along in your spiritual life in some way, if you have ever gotten past the initial rush of salvation, you must be prepared to continue to work. 
continue to be at it. As I mentioned, when Nehemiah sees all of this stuff, he wastes no time in surprise nor in self-pity. There is no deep inner frustration as many of us would have gone through asking, did I waste my time on all that? Did I waste my energy on those people? Did I waste my energy on that project, on that thing? No, Nehemiah simply rolls up his sleeves once again and he gets right back to work. He repurified the temple, it says in verse 9. It said, I gave them orders to purify the rooms and I put back into them the equipment of the house of God with the grain offerings and the incense and everything else that's needed for worship. He recommissioned the priests. I rebuked them and said, why is the house of God neglected? Then I called them together and stationed the priests back at their posts. Verse 11. He made the people recommit to the fidelity uh, uh, to, uh, uh, to God's people. I made them take an oath in God's name. Verse 25. You are not to give your daughters in marriage to their sons, nor are you to take your daughters in marriage for their sons for your, or for yourselves. And restored, lastly, the Sabbath. Verse 19. When evening shadows fell on the gates of Jerusalem before the Sabbath, I ordered the doors to be shut. And not open until the Sabbath was over. Then I commanded the Levites to guard the gates in order to keep the Sabbath day holy. This is what Nehemiah did. Just simply just got right back to work. He doesn't waste any emotional energy regretting that he had put his life work into something that, he would, that would not last. No, it would sustain. He doesn't do any of that. Real life, life on this side of heaven, is mired in entropy. That's the fact. He gets down to the business of re-restoration. And if he had to, he would have, he would be there for the re-restoration too. You, can, you just know he would. These things that it leads the people to do, the worship, the intermarriage uh, ban, Sabbath. Um, they may not sound like, at this point, like spiritual disciplines, but they are. That's what they are. These are essentially what they do, and the thing, they, are th- they are the things that Nehemiah leads the people to do so that they can focus on remembering God as the center of their existence. And that's what spiritual disciplines do for us, to help us remember that God is the center of our existence. And it's true. All spiritual disciplines are just a shade away from becoming legalism. Okay? But that doesn't mean we don't do them. When I was younger, I think... Especially, I remember um, I, was, I was emailing a friend of mine from my college days, but I remember so many of our um, uh, uh, theological debates. We, for some reason, it was kind of fun for us to do these things. But it would, be, would end in like, oh, that's legalism. Because it was such a cool thing to say. Oh, something's legalism. That's why I don't do it. And sometimes I hear it from people and say, well, I'm not going to do something because that's just legalistic. And the way somebody does it. I get that. All spiritual disciplines are just a shade away from legalism. But that doesn't mean we stop doing them. 
If you learn any sports, uh, uh, Max has learned to play basketball. The drills that he does, there's sometimes some coaches, some people will get really stuck on how to do a drill. And they'll become legalistic about it. Just because, however, that somebody could get legalistic and get stuck on doing the drill right, as if the drill is the point of doing the, the uh, as the point of the whole thing, doesn't mean that you stop doing drills or that drills have, don't have a value. You still go at it, always checking your heart for the possible ways in which you may be veering toward legalism. We need to learn from Nehemiah's example. There is a constant need for a disciplined life. The experience of renewal never means that our work is over. The end of the year isn't time for us to dwell on how we have found revival or how we have found failure in this past year. We don't get to wax nostalgic about our past spirituality, nor do we get to regret our past attempts. It is time to get back to work. The work of pursuing God's purposes in our lives. And by the way, in our group, when I look around, when I think about our group, I see a lot of people who are, when I talk about discipline, I see a lot of people who are incredibly disciplined, at least in one, if not more, areas of your life. Some of you guys have to be incredibly disciplined in order to do all the things that you, you have to do. To juggle all of your responsibilities. You just have to do. That's how you get, get past even just every day. And I think for those of us who are disciplined, there's an, even a greater danger. Because it's possible you're dealing with maybe not just general entropy. Maybe you don't let everything deteriorate. But you have a tendency to be Practicing selective entropy. That letting certain parts of your life deteriorate. And you become blind to it, however, because you know you're going, well, you think about yourself and you say, I'm generally a very disciplined person. So I can't really, I'm not really, you know, I'm good with this. I'm generally pretty good with this. I mean, in order for me to manage this, 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 and this, man, I have to be so disciplined and I have to be so focused of course, I'm, I'm okay with this. But doing that can actually make us completely oblivious, have a blind side to the fact that there are certain areas of our, of our lives that we are practicing selective entropy with. Letting certain relationships, letting certain addictions, letting certain parts of our soul just wither and deteriorate and harden. I would include myself and one of the disciplined people. This is my personal struggle. I know this about myself. I know I can be like, uh, I know I can, I can be very disciplined and I know I can come across very disciplined. People are always surprised when they find out my desks are always a mess. 
my room is always a gigantic mess because they go, oh, I thought you'd be like very much neater than that. The people always say something like that. And that, I think, is a little bit of a picture of my life as well. I think I can come across very disciplined, but I know that I practice selective entropy. And the bad thing about selective entropy is that people don't even, other people around you, a lot of them are oblivious to it. People don't even point, that, point it out. You need like, you, you need somebody like a, a Nehemiah with like super x-ray vision to be able to help you with this. All right? Maybe there's some areas right now that you're aware of, that you know that there's deterioration. You know there are ways in which you have let things go. I want to leave you right now with just some thoughts then on how to apply this. How do we deal with spiritual entropy? How do we begin the process, process of re-restoration? How do we return to the work of pursuing God's purposes in our lives? And I want to focus on just three simple things. Three very practical things that you should, um, I really ask you guys to really take note of right now. You don't have to literally take a note of it, but you could take note of it because it's that simple. First, take ownership of the entropy. Take ownership of the entropy that you encounter. Whether it's in your life, whether it's in a church ministry, whether it's in your marriage, whether it's in another important uh, relationship, you take ownership of that deterioration and do what you can. Do what you can, not what somebody else can or what not. Don't focus on what somebody else is not doing. But you take ownership of what you can do. One of the most amazing things about Nehemiah, the story of Nehemiah and also his friend Ezra, both of them are a little bit kind of strange biblical heroes because they don't perform any miracles. They're not like these spectacularly charismatic individuals. They're not like uh, generals in the field. They have no feats of valor or bravery or courage. Nehemiah, I told you at the very beginning of the series, is a little bit up t- uptight, a little bit of a micromanager, and a lot OCD on certain things, like writing down names. I mean, he's got to write down the names of a person and his father and his grandfather for every single one of these guys, for what they did and which part of the wall they worked on. He lists all of these things. I can't tell you how many, how many pages we skipped because they were all filled with names. Super detail-oriented guy. This guy is a manager at heart. And he loves to keep records of everything. If I was his high school guidance counselor, I would have said, oh, I think he might be like a CPA. <laughs> I didn't know you were going to be here today. So. Well, so. I mean, the detail, I'm not saying it's a bad thing. So, You're like Nehemiah. He's the hero of what we've been studying. Gosh. It's so great to have you from Tennessee. Thank you. 
Those of you who have had to suffer through reading all of these names in our service, you can blame Nehemiah's detail-orientedness for that, right? And, but he did what he could. He did what he could. He didn't try to lead in a way that somebody else would. Um, he didn't try to become a Moses or a David. Uh, there was a time in the middle of the, the, the um, story where he gets confronted, almost challenged by these guys to battle. And Nehemiah knows that he's not a general. He doesn't have a whole lot of testosterone running through him. He knows he's more of a manager, a bureaucrat. So he says, I'm not going to go with you guys and fight. I'm not going to fight you guys. He backs down from those fights. That's not how he leads. That's not what he does. That's not his gift. But he does what he can. He's not a fighter. We don't even know. He's, he's not a, but he's not a lover. He was a bureaucrat, a manager. So he uses what God has gifted him with to serve God's purposes. And that's what you're called to do. Take ownership of the deterioration of a relationship, of a ministry, of your soul, of your life. Take ownership of the fact that the pursuit of God's purposes have been led adrift in your life, that you have settled for a quasi-spiritual life. Don't worry about what you can't do. Don't worry about what somebody else is not doing. But you do what you can You do what you can. Even if it seems like nothing, even if it seems unusable, I guarantee you that God will surprise you. I guarantee you that God will surprise you with how he uses you. Second thing. First is take the ownership. Take ownership and you do what you can. Second thing. The time for doing this is now. The time for doing this is now. The time to deal with entropy is now. Not tomorrow. Not January 1st. Not when things settle down. Not when you have time. This is one of the simplest advices that I can give to you, but it is one of the most disregarded. The time to act on entropy is now. The time to begin your re-restoration project is now. The time to begin your pursuit of God's purposes is now. Because if you don't, what you're actually saying is that entropy is really mainly external. That circumstances are what controls when and how you can deal with the deterioration. It's not. The reversal of entropy always begins with you and your heart. And that begins now. If you're waiting for a time, you will run out. If you're waiting for that moment, you will always find yourself surprised by how quickly the time has passed by and how many opportunities for love and grace and ministry and and spreading of God's word with your life, all the ways in which you could have connected better and deeper and more joyfully and lived and celebrated your life has passed you by. I was reading something about this guy who worked for AARP AARP, one of the senior managers at AARP, and one of the senior managers, but, you know, everybody at AARP is a senior manager. (laughs) And he said, 
they have this rather incredible ability to identify and send out a membership invitation packet to anyone who is about to turn 50. You could be living alone in the woods somewhere, but they'll track you down and mail you a packet. And people always have two responses. He said, he said people always have two responses upon receiving these invitations. First is surprise. What? But I'm still so young. I just, I just I, I'm in my 30s. Or, or yeah, I feel like I'm in my 30s. I just feel like I, you know, I just, I, I'm just starting out my midlife crisis. Followed by the second response, anger. <laughs> I can't believe these people think I'm old enough to join them. It's so stupid. And then they look at all the deals that you get. It's like, whoa, 10% off at Denny's every time I go. The point being, Time passes by faster than you think. Time passes by and all of a sudden you have let your life be lived in a way in which you've let all of these opportunities pass by. Time passes by sooner than you think and you will be the worse off for it. Time to act, do something is now. Time to deal with spiritual deterioration is now because you know You never know when that moment of awareness will occur again. We don't get these moments in which we go, yeah, I've blinded myself. I've I've turned my head to the ways in which I let my certain areas of my life, certain things around me deteriorate. The time to act is now when you're aware of it while the thick of the fog has lifted for that moment. Don't put this off. There's nothing more important than this. What would it benefit a person if they gained the whole world but they lost their soul? There's no other priority greater than this, Jesus saying. And last thing I want to say to you, that this reversal of entropy is actually possible. Not because you're so disciplined, not because you're so powerful, but because this is one of God's promises. If you were to ask a physicist or the two people that I'm telling you that know entropy better than I do, they'll tell you about how the irreversibility of entropy is not possible. Things are winding down. It cannot be reversed. And so often I get the sense from people and we settle. We think, oh, that's just how it's going to be. I'm just going to settle. We settle for something far below what we know to be God's calling in our lives. We settle for something far below God's purposes in our lives. Close enough, we say. But the law of entropy is reversible with God. Entropy will not get the last word in creation. And it doesn't have to in your life or in my life either. Every day, this is what Jesus is saying. 
Just ask me. Just be with me, and I will help you to do this. Every day, this is Jesus saying this to you. Who shall separate us from the love of God? Apostle Paul asked rhetorically. Answer is no one. This last Sunday of the year, in one sense, whether for good or for bad, don't dwell in the past. Think and believe and trust that God can lead you in this new coming year in ways that you could have not even imagined. Let's pray that to him one more time. Rededicating our lives. Recommitting to a time of re-restoration. Father God, we ask you right now, we ask you right now that you would honor our recommitments once again, that you would strengthen us and help us to be people of discipline. May brave and courageous to face the challenges of having to work this out once again because you are with us because you make it possible. Thank you, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.